So I have a title for my sermon, and it comes in a series of sermons. The title of the sermon is Adam and Eve Before the Fall into Sin. Now, why are we looking at Adam and Eve before the fall into sin? Well, last time we looked at Adam before the fall into sin. And the reason we're doing this is we're trying to, I'm trying to give you the proper theological, biblical, scriptural foundation to understand how, what the Ten Commandments should look like in a Christian's life. Of the various things we've done, I've done so far, this is like Sermon 7, I think, uh, we've seen that Holy Scripture is clear that due to being created, God has special claims upon us. That's kind of basic, but very important to get. He has special claims upon us because he created us in his image. We looked at what that meant. With the law of God written on our hearts, we learned from that outside of the Genesis account, but it's the rest of the Bible kind of shining light on what's going on in Genesis, uh, things that Moses didn't explicitly write, but that are implicitly there. God tells us what some of those things are. But since the entrance of sin, violating the law of God, first by our first parents and then by all the rest of us, no one lives up to their responsibilities in, in, in relation to God. Romans 3, 19 and 20 was the first passage we looked at. Here's what that passage says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be closed and all the world. Okay, so this is a law that extends throughout the globe holds people accountable, that all the world may be accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So somehow, some way, even people without the Bible, this is true of them, as well as people who have the Bible and don't believe it. We're all guilty. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All are responsible to the same basic law. None of us keep it. We also have seen that all men have what Paul calls the law written on the heart, uh, the work of the law written on their hearts. That's Romans 2.15. We looked at that. That In the passage, if you read the whole passage, we'd see that he's including Jews and Greeks, people with the Hebrew Old Testament, and people without special revelation written scripture. Somehow, some way, by virtue of their creation, they have this sense of the law on their hearts. But we're not like, we don't come out of our mother, mother's wombs like Adam came from the dust and Eve came from the side. They came out perfect, which means mature, um, and they didn't come out guilty. We come out of the womb lying, as the psalmist says. Okay, we have guilt, the just liability to punishment, and we have pollution. We're, we're messed up. We're not able to do what Adam and Eve were created to do and did for a little while. Um, that is, engage with the world around us without violating the law that's within us. We can't do that. We don't do that. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created in the image of God. We looked at that. Before their fall into sin, they were 
uh, it says this, and God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So this, we're image bearers, even though we're not what they were when they were created, we're still image bearers, we're just horrible ones. We need a fix. We have a fix, by the way, in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son. Adam and Eve were created with what, what I called, and I borrowed the phrase, original righteousness. Now, what's that? Well, listen to the Bible. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright. I think he's talking about creation. But they have all sought out many devices. So this moral integrity, there's this uprightness. Here's how our doctrinal statement, our confession of faith puts it. After God made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto the, that life to God for which they were created. So he makes them in such a way as they are fit to, for a certain quality of life that they were created, I think, to attain, but they didn't. Being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. If you remember the texts, it's Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 that uses that language, uh, talking about the rebirth, the renewal, the repairing of souls through Christ, but it uses creational language. That means there's an old creation and there's a new creation. Uh, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written on their hearts. Where'd they get that? Well, Christian tradition has said it for a long time. No, they got it from Romans 2. And power to fulfill it. And yet, under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Able to sin, able not to sin. Remember, we did that. So we're looking back at these sinless people. We're not looking at ourselves because we're not sinless. We're looking at that first at Adam. Now we're looking at Adam and Eve together. And this is a good explanation of what they were like. Man was made morally upright. Adam and Eve were created as adults, as I said before, so perfect or mature. They, they are the only image-bearing creatures on the earth created this way. You ever thought of that? Adam and Eve are the only ones created mature, perfect. Everybody else comes out of the womb. It's just, you know, it's the way God did it, but we I actually mentioned this earlier. Why, does the, why doesn't the Lord, as the last Adam, just show up a mature adult? Well, he does after he goes through all the stages to be righteous for us because we weren't in all the stages that we went through. They had this thing we called original righteousness, which was created with man, so whatever it is, and I'm going to explain it in a second, it was, he was concreated with this original righteousness. That means with it, okay? He was created with it. It wasn't added to him later. He was created with it. Something he lost. This original righteousness is something uh, he lost. Therefore, the rest of us are lacking something. You know, you ever thought of this? Is sin a thing? Can you touch sin? The answer is no. Sin is lawlessness, we know. Sin is 
the lack of something we ought to have. It's uh, a technical word. It's the privation of righteousness. That is the ability, as creatures made in the image of God with the law written on our, our heart, to look outside there and to every single time conclude or do with that which we look at, a tree, what we ought to do, and that is worship God, not the tree. Okay, now we worship trees and cars and bank accounts and bodies. I worship my body and becoming a worshiper of a bigger body every week of my life these past few years. So Adam and Eve had the ability to interact with the creation in such a way as they didn't violate the law of God. Okay, so their mind took in knowledge. They went through that discursive process that we all go through. And then their affections were inflamed by that knowledge. And they, they, they reached out. They were attracted to whatever the thing is. And they did with the thing what creatures made in the image of God ought to do with it every single time. Well, until we read chapter 3, right? Able to sin, able not to sin. So this original righteousness, it's gone. We don't have it. They had it. By virtue of their sin, God judges them. They don't have it anymore. They need it in order to be right with God. They can't produce it, and nobody else throughout the entirety of the history of the Bible could until in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So he assumed our nature, he assumed our duties, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law. He assumed our liabilities in order to bring us to God. Now, last time, this is all review. See how difficult it is to have, be in a series of sermons, skip a couple weeks, and then come back, and then look out there and go, and some people didn't hear any of those sermons. They're going to be, they're going to fall asleep if I don't keep them awake. But last time, okay, this is a couple weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, we started focusing in on Adam, okay? So we started this side of the fall into sin with us, and we're tracing it back. We're saying, okay, then we're messed up. How do we get messed up, and what's the fix? We know the fix is Christ and Christ alone. What were they like before they fell into sin? Can we learn anything about that? We can, because the rest of the Bible looks back and, and explains some of that for us. So we started doing that with Adam, and the reason we did that with Adam is because the Bible itself speaks about Adam in a very interesting way. Paul does it in two major texts, Romans 5, where he says in Romans 5.14, and Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Okay, so here's Paul in this side of the cross and resurrection of our Savior, writing an epistle, and he's comparing the first Adam and Christ. And he says, that Adam, in his pre-fallen state, before he sinned, was a type of him who was to come. It was a type of this Adam, and in 1 Corinthians 15 is the other major passage, where Paul calls Christ the last Adam. Remember that? 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Why, why are we looking at the New Testament to help us with Genesis 2? Because God is commenting on his word. Right? His, his word, Genesis 2, 
commenting 1 Corinthians 5, excuse me, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. The Bible is shedding light on the Bible. Some of the details that aren't there, that are actually there behind the text, are, are filled in for us later. It's God commenting on God's word and also God telling us about God's divine act of creation in the image of God first. So here is, here's Adam at the beginning of our Bible, a type of Christ already. Before he falls into sin, is God able to have types that point to redemption and salvation before sin even occurs? Yep. Where? Adam? Guess where else? Adam's wife. We'll get there if I ever get to Genesis 2. So we looked at Adam, saw that basically... If you put all the pieces together, the last Adam, what he does, and, and then you kind of project that back on the first Adam, you realize that Adam's a public person. And that's an old way of saying, Adam represented others. In Adam, all die. There's Paul. Adam's a public figure, so as he goes, so goes whoever he represents. In Christ, public figure, federal or covenant head, so he said Adam was, at some point, there was this covenant revealed to Adam on top of his created status that if he violates it, death comes. And by implication, if he doesn't violate it, a quality of life would be given to him that he didn't have by virtue of his creation. So when we read a popular verse like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the people that are here, been here a long time, know what we do next. Who's the first sinner? Adam. What did he fall short of? Glory. What's glory? Something he didn't have by virtue of his created status. How would he have gotten this, whatever glory is, by not sinning? What's the an, uh, uh, an antonym for not sinning? Obeying. So by virtue of his obedience, he could have earned this reward conferred, uh, offered him through this covenantal uh, revelation of, of God. The, the Bible itself looks back on, on this, uh, Adam in the garden, and uses the word covenant at least twice. Uh, they, Israel, like Adam, broke the covenant. Israel had a covenant they were under, they violated it. Adam had a covenant they, he was under, he violated it. So we started looking at Adam last week. We saw that the last Adam takes um, his seed where the first Adam failed to take his Heaven's agent through whom many sons are brought to glory is the incarnate Son of God. You want to go to glory? Get on his train. Find out a way to be connected to him. Lay hold of him. Grab a hold of Christ. He'll take you to glory. He's, the only, he's heaven's only agent that brings sinners to glory. He actually brings us to a better state than the Edenic state. Right? Able to sin, able not to sin. Do you want glory to be like that? No. Or as Dr. Ranahan would say, no. No. Uh, glory is a permanent state of existence in the safe presence of God without the ability to sin. So that was Adam. Now, what about Adam and Eve? 
we're still not, we haven't even got to the fall into sin yet, okay? We're, we're looking at Genesis 1 and 2. We're letting the Bible help us interpret what's going on there. Um, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, law written on the heart, you know, all those kinds of things. That's language elsewhere that's cast back on the first, our first parents, Adam and Eve. Looked at Adam. He's a, he's a type of Christ. He's a federal person. He represents others. It's not in Adam and Eve all die. It's in Adam all die. You know, you read the Genesis account, and if you ask this question, who sinned first? Adam and or Eve. Some, the men want to say, well, this is the woman. <laughs> because Paul says that in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. But there's another argument that could be made. Why was she over there by herself? I thought you were supposed to cultivate and keep the garden, which now includes your wife, and ward off any enemies. He didn't do that, did he? Um, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt be faithful to your marriage vows. He wasn't. So now we're going to look at Eve. Well, Adam and Eve before the fall into sin. And that comes to us in Genesis 2, 18 to 25. So in order to get a whole Bible view of what's going on in Eve's creation, I want to read Ephesians 5. You're going, why are you reading Ephesians 5 if we're studying Genesis 2? Because Paul cites Genesis 2, verse 24. Adam and Eve and their relationship before the fall into sin. And that's the question we're asking ourselves. And if God's word picks up the same answer we're looking for, at least a part of it, then we should probably listen to God's word on this. So let's go to Ephesians 5. This is my first and only sermon on marriage, I think, that I've given. Uh, But it is, and you learn a lot from this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 to 32. I'm not going to read the entire passage. So husbands ought, this is what they ought to do, also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does his own flesh. I mean, excuse me, the church, his flesh and his bones, because we are members of his body. For, here's the Genesis reference, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So far, so good. Now he throws this in there. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What? What did he just do there? He got all Puritan on us, didn't he? This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. But you just cited Genesis 2.24 a text that occurs before Genesis 3, which recount narrates for us the first sin. Christ and the church is somehow, some way revealed to us before the fall into sin? You know the answer. And the answer is, well, yeah. 
Well, can God typify redemptive things, salvation, before the need for salvation occurs on the earth? And the answer is Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. There's, there's an example. Here's another example. So we're going to use um, this mystery, though it's a revealed mystery. Okay, It's not like a mystery, oh, we can't know anything about it. It's still mysterious, but it's revealed to us, so we can know some things about it. And we're going to use this to help us look through Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Now, just um, let me say this. Just as Adam was a type of Christ, I'll just say it, Eve is a type of the church. Now, some of you are going, I never heard that. Others have heard it before. Um, it's not a new doctrine. It goes all the way back to the Apostle Paul, and actually it's implicit in the account in Genesis itself. But all the older commentators, you know, a commentator, somebody who gives their life to studying a book and writing about it, all the older ones go there really quick. And the reason why they do is God told them to through Paul in Ephesians 5. So when God tells us to view the relationship between Adam and Christ this way from his word, then we're going to go back there and we're going to, we're going to do that and see what we can learn from it. Um, so just as Adam was a type of Christ, Eve is a type of the church. And I'm going to say this too. I think you'll see this as we work our way through the passage. Just as Adam was supposed to love and cherish his bride, it's Paul's language, so... Christ actually loves and cherishes his bride. Taking Paul's point in Ephesians 5 with us, let's go back there and see if we can garner anything from it. Genesis 2.18. Genesis 2.18. If you're sitting here going, you're finally getting to your passage? Almost. Well, you see what I have to do? I've got to set the stage. I've got to provide a context. I, we have new folks coming. We have people that have heard all the sermons. We have people that have heard none of the sermons. And my wife wasn't here so that on the way here, I could clean it up on the way. So, But with all that, okay, I'm just trying to draw out of your heads the knowledge that you probably already have, okay? You just haven't put it all together maybe the way I did. Now we can come here and we look at verse 18. I think verse 18 I th- uh, functions as an introduction to the most important point of verses 18 through 25. And I'll get to that in a second. But watch verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Okay, This is, this is the point of this passage. Verse 20 as well. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Animals aren't suitable for men. He needs a woman, one man, one woman, you know, for life. Note verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Here's an observation. Eve comes from Adam. Now, it took me to get a PhD to be able to make that observation. 
Everybody can see that, right? Eve comes from Adam. God causes this sleep to fall upon Adam. God takes a rib out of the side. God closes it up. And God forms or builds from the rib a wife. Eve comes from Adam. Verse 22 is very clear about that. And the Lord God fashioned or built into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Eve comes not from Adam's head, to rule over him, we might say, nor from his foot, to be squished by him, but from near his heart, to be cherished as a fellow image bearer with created differences. You know, the bone that's made into Eve doesn't look like Adam, right? That's a suitable helpmeet for him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it can't be exactly like him. You think we can take from this, here's a question, do you think we can take from these observations that the church, Christ's bride, comes from him? If the first marriage is a type of Christ and his church, and if the head has his bride made from him, can we say that the head, Christ, is the author of the bride, the church, that all the virtue, all the goods that we get come from him and are um, benefits divine that come to us. I, I, I think we can. We probably sing hymns about that already. So do you think that we can take from this that the church, Christ's bride, comes from our Lord? I think the answer is yes. Its life comes from him? The answer is yes. Did he sleep for us? That's an interesting question. God put Adam to sleep, and out of while he was sleeping, or by virtue of having slept, this new life comes on the scene. Uh, do you know? You guys know that read the Bible that sleep is often a symbol for death in Scripture, right? Could Adam's sleep be a type of the last Adam's death? Could well be, right? All the old guys say. Yes! All the new guys say, no, this is ridiculous. You're getting your theology from hymns instead of the Bible. Could Adam's sleep be a type of the last Adam's death due to which believers get life, eternal life? Yes! How do we know that it's yes or 90-something percent certain yes? God told us to look for those kind of things. Where did he tell us? Ephesians 5, through the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if I have this in my notes, but think about this. Did something ever come out of the side of the Lord? Ay, 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 there's another one. <laughs> Blood and water, forgiveness of sins, and symbol of cleansing. No, it can't be, right? All the old commentators say, Amen. All the contemporary or most of the modern ones say, no way. Here's another thing. 
When Adam sinned, was he in a valley or on a mountain, on a high place? You know, the rivers of Eden flowed down. He was up. It's God's holy mountain, I think Isaiah calls it. Where is the place of the skull? In a valley? It's up on a high place, right? Couldn't there be something there too? No, no way, says the moderns. All the old guys say, of course, God, before the fall into sin, is pointing toward redemptive realities that won't come to fulfillment, and we won't know all the connections until the reality comes. But when the reality comes, we look back and we go, wow, Adam was a type of him who was to come. Eve was a type of the church. Adam was Christ. Eve was the church. She was made from his side. She got life from his side. She benefited from his sleep. Note verse 22, and the Lord God fashioned or built. Some people make a big deal about this word. Fashioned can be translated built. Keep that in your mind. He built into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Eve comes from Adam. The church, a new creation, comes from Christ. Eve's humanity is connected to Adam. Now, some of you have heard me talk about old creation, new creation. This is old or first creation we're looking at right now. Eve's humanity is connected to Adam. She gets it by virtue of him having it. Believers get their messed up humanity from being in Adam. Believers get their messed up humanity renewed and ultimately glorified by the first or the last Adam or by their own works, by the last Adam. So we get our They get their created life. We get the created life brought to its terminus, glory. We get our eternal life by virtue of the last Adam, giving it, earning it for us and giving it to us. In him that is in Christ, believers become a new creation. Did I say this a few weeks ago? It's interesting how the old creation starts, the big things, you know, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's pretty big. And then Moses ends up going day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. Day six is pretty important. This is the the end of the old creation is man in, in the image of God. What's the beginning of the new creation? The resurrection of the Son of God. So the new creation starts small and ends up doing what? Conquering everything. Same thing with us. We're a new creation. Regeneration brings us into that orbit of new creation language in the Bible. Um, But we don't get the whole thing, right? Uh, You're not glorified, by the way. Sorry. Um, we, We still sin. So we get it in part, and then we get the whole. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, new creation, the old things passed away, behold, new things have come. So we're, we're in the old creation and the new creation at once because we're not totally there, so we're partially still here. 
That's why, wives, that's why your husbands are the way they are. And it's why you are the way you are. And if you don't have a husband or a wife, it's the way you are. That's why you, you're that way, because we're not in glory. Um, love, this is written to Christians, love covers only one sin. But if they sin against you twice, they're on the list. Love covers two sins. Love covers, what does it say? A multitude of sins. Why does he have to say that to Christians? Because they commit multitudes of sins. <laughs> it's like, you didn't, didn't need me to explain that. That's why you, you chuckled. You're going, well, I, of course, because we, we do that. We're not in glory. Note also that the word fashioned, built, I said built, it can be translated built. Could this be why Jesus said things like, I will build my church? People who have been here long enough know that when I say, could it be that they know where I'm going with that? Of course, I think it is. I will build my church. And the thing that Adam allowed to happen, he allowed the devil to get his foot in there, ain't going to happen. The gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Wow, there's a connection right out of the lips of our Lord. You think he kind of connected some of these dots himself during his earthly ministry? The church is called God's house, God's building. Um, the temple, Christians are called stones in that building. Jesus is the cornerstone of that building. Temple language when does temple language start in the Bible? Actually, the Garden of Eden is viewed by the prophets and sometimes in the Psalms with its, they use, guard, they use uh, temple language to describe what's going on over there, which ultimately makes Adam the first priest, but he failed as a priest. He's actually the first prophet as well because he was responsible to explain the commission given to him by his creator to Adamites, to his seed, to his children. Um, he was actually the first king, too, because he was supposed to cultivate and this is your turf, guard it. You're the king. So, as first prophet, priest, and king, what do you do? He sinned. What do we need? A prophet, priest, and king that, be, that represents others, who's a sinless son of God who destroys the works of the devil. The Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3 8. Pretty convenient verse, huh? It's more than convenience, the written word of God. And it's the Apostle John commenting on the, the sufferings and glory of our Christ, of Christ, this side of the resurrection, and connecting his interpretation with Genesis. The church is called God's house, God's building, God's temple. Here's one more observation. And he, God, brought her to the man. I'm not looking at text, by the way. My wife told me I should, you know, she's right. I can use that clock. Okay. I'm looking at my timer. I'm not like trading stock or anything. Uh, here's one more observation from this verse. Verse 22b. And he brought her to the man. Okay, the man is Adam. Her is 
Eve, and he who brought her is God. God brings the bride to the husband. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. No one can come to me unless they're brought. These are the words of Jesus. Is there, are there some connection? I think there is. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Father draws sinners to the Son. He presents them to the Son. The Son, as the last Adam, says, they're mine. Nobody's going to touch them. At least ultimately. So just as God brought Eve to Adam to be married, so God brings sinners to Christ to be married. Think of marriage. You're going to hopefully think of marriage a little different. And you also think of the Song of Solomon different. You really think it's about having sex out in the jungle or something? This is the way some guy preached it one time. Because it seems like they're doing marital things outdoors. And he says, you know, that's what it's about. I'm going, if I said something, I just said something like that, huh? If I preach that, by the time I get back, this was, he was in a different country saying this, but I said, if I did that, my elders would be waiting for me and my church would be waiting for me at the airport, (laughs) calling me to repent of such silliness. Hopefully you'll you know, the, all the, the, almost, I think it's the entirety of the Christian church, at least most of them, all the big brains, all the big heads and hearts that we say, the, we need to listen to these. They all interpreted the Song of Solomon like Adam and Eve, like Christ and the church. Anyway, that was a freebie on the side there. Just as God brought Eve to Adam to be married, so God brings sinners to Christ to be married. Now let's look at Genesis 2, 23 to 25. And the man said, this is now, now this is fascinating, this is now my wife. Now that thing, the work of the law written on my heart, now it makes sense. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I get it now, all right? Um, Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there's the divine commentary. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That last verse is kind of weird. Huh? It's like, did you just say what I think you said? Adam and Eve were naked and they weren't ashamed. We can't even begin to fathom that, can we? I mean, most people, you know, when you take a shower, you don't leave the curtains open and say, hey, I'm taking a shower. Right? We feel like we don't, but they were naked and not ashamed. They didn't feel threatened by being 
See, they weren't even exposed. That's the way they were created. There must have been some sense of innocency and transparency that they had that we've never, never tasted. So Adam realizes he's married. Isn't that interesting? That's basically what happens. Boom. I'm married. I got a wife. (laughs) God confirms this, that this is the first creaturely marriage in verse 24. That's the divine commentary. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife. You usually hear that in... Christian marriage ceremonies, and I think rightly so. That's the verse Paul references. So we're looking at the broader context. If one verse tips the hat toward there being a mystery, a type back there, maybe there's more to it than just the one verse. I think that's the way. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, they're not telling you, just go back and look at this one verse with your blinders on. They want you to see it in its wider context. And when you do, I think a lot of these Things that I've been saying, you go, all I did was just read the text, explain it a little. Well, first of all, I set you up for it. And then I read the text, explained it a little, and then I just quoted words from Jesus. I will build my church. When I did that, some of you said the words before I did. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In other words, I'm I'm the last Adam. I'm not going to do like the first Adam did. You can see it even in other places, like in the genealogy in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 3. You go all the way through all those names, going, what in the world? Are these? I can't even, ex- I can't even um, pronounce half these names. The son of, son of, son of, the son of Adam finally gets there. And then the next phrase, the son of God. Adam is called a son of God in Luke 3.38. Then what happens? The spirit drives the Lord out into the wilderness to be tempted. The first Adam was tempted in paradise. The last Adam was tempted in the wilderness. Why? Because we got kicked out of the garden a long time ago. We're out in the wilderness. He's got to save us from the wilderness. And you don't look at Luke 4 and Matthew 4, Jesus quoting the scripture. I've done this before. I'm going to do it again. You don't look at those texts and go, oh, man, I'm a horrible scripture uh, um, uh, memorizer, which you probably are. Uh, Jesus set the example. Luke 3 and Luke 4, it sets the example for us. Jesus put the bar pretty high, really high. He tells us he's able to go toe-to-toe with the devil and just pull these verses out and quote them verbatim from the Old Testament. What a model. What an example. I fall short. Yeah, you fall shorter than you realize. But it's not as a moral example merely that we should read those. This is the hero of the last Adamites. This is the hero of our redemption. This is the last Adam beating the devil at his own game and winning the day for us. Adam realizes he's married, and God confirms this in verse 24. The creation of Eve causes Adam to realize something already written on his heart. 
Basically, marriage is a sacred institution. Because listen to him. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. Those are like, this is a sacred um, statement by the first man when he views uh, Eve for the first time. But the sacredness of marriage, it wasn't something that he had to, is this thing sacred or not, God? It was already on his heart. The work of the law is there. Now he engages with a creature and he concludes, he takes in the information based on his observation and he concludes rightly and he makes a sacred statement about his relationship with this newly formed creature. Bone of bones and flesh of flesh brings with it the responsibility to nourish and to cherish. Why did I say that? God told me. Where did he tell you? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So there is an oughtness in Eve being brought to Adam, an oughtness, a responsibility that is Adam's in relation to Eve. God brings Eve to him. He makes this sacred statement, basically like a covenantal oath. Elsewhere in the Bible, marriage is is, is a type of, of a covenant, you know. Um, like a covenantal oath in the presence of God, I'm going to nourish and cherish her. And nobody's going to get to her over my dead body kind of thing, you know. It was a good start, wasn't it? But we know the rest. Didn't last very long. There was an oughtness in Eve being brought to Adam. He ought to nourish and cherish her as her own flesh. He does nourish and cherish his own flesh, if he's like the rest of us, but he didn't nourish and cherish his own flesh in the person of his wife as he ought to have. Not doing so is a violation of at least the seventh commandment. You think Adam broke the seventh commandment when he sinned, when he allowed his wife to be duped by the devil? And then he took the fruit that she, that, that she took and ate and gave it to him. You think there's any violation of the, tenth, the seventh commandment going on there? The answer is, yeah. But the seventh commandment isn't revealed until Exodus 20. How can he violate the seventh commandment if Moses doesn't write about it until God doesn't reveal it until the account at Exodus 20 on the stone tablets? Maybe the law's written, the word of the law's written on their hearts. And so we can't, I can't give you an analogy based on my experience or your experience, but there they were prior to the fall into sin, and the things stamped on their souls would, would be uh, enacted when they viewed certain things outside of themselves and drew conclusions. Like when Eve shows up, this is, 
This is my bride. This is sacred. I ought to cherish and nourish her. Now, those aren't his words, but it's his oughtness. It's his duty. You shall not commit adultery. Therefore, the flip side, you shall treat your marriage as sacred. You shall nourish and cherish your wife, Adam, especially since you're a type of him who was to come, but if you don't sin, he's not going to come. That's weird to think about, huh? But he sinned. That's what we know. She sinned. He sinned. Death that was threatened by God in Genesis 2.15 is enacted by God. They're changed internally, and they begin to decay, and they physically die. Their souls are separated from their bodies. That's what happens when people die now. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, I'd rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus in heaven, in the context, so that the body stays here and corrodes, and the soul is immediately with the Savior. That, that state of existence, disembodied human souls, is a result of divine judgment. And that happened to Adam and Eve. But something you can't see, couldn't see with your eye happened as well. You, you could have seen them decay and get older if you lived a long time, because they, you know, what, was he like 900 before he died or something like that? Um, but you couldn't see what happened inside. They lost original righteousness. They still had the law written on the heart. They had the little domestic chaplain we call the, the conscience saying, boo, bad decision, you're guilty. But now, without original righteousness, they can't engage the world through the lens of the law, it's all foggy and messed up, and they, they need help. You know, out of Genesis 3, this pronouncement of judgment comes from God. Um, they don't need just judgment from God. It's just of God to enact the judgment and pronounce the curse. But if that's all they get from God, we're idiots for being here. Except we get creature comfort and I'm going to get good food over at Bonnie's and stuff like that. Nothing vertical, right? If all God does is say, judgment. That's, that's just of him to do that. But it's not good news for us. Couched in the language of judgment is this. The seed of the woman, now that's interesting, shall crush the head of the serpent. So let me get this right. The woman came from the man. And now the woman is going to give birth to a man who does what the first man didn't do, fail, what he failed, who does what he failed to do. That's cool if that's true. That's exactly what that Genesis 3.15 teased out with the rest of Scripture means. Um, 
You know, at the beginning of Genesis 4, Eve says something like this, I've, I've gotten a man, I'm pregnant. And some of you know that some commentators say, it is literally, I've gotten a man, pause, the Lord. If you read older ones, like I think Luther, poor woman thought she gave birth to the Messiah. She had understood the curse properly. God's going to provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. She got the timing wrong. I suggest to you, I think that was happening there. And that, if that was happening, I think it was, it indicates that Eve's our sister. She believed the promise that was couched in the language of curse. God cursing and yet mercy. God announcing judgment along with mercy. Some people struggle with that. That that can't be the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. It's just judgment. Okay, what about the... The exodus from Egyptian bondage. There's a lot of judgment going on there, right? Water is crashing down on the enemies of God's people and killing them. Well, the Israelites are receiving mercy. So that's just God's way of doing things. Sometimes when while people are getting judged at the same time, others are receiving mercy. Uh, some unto a resurrection of life, mercy, some unto a resurrection of judgment. One resurrection with those two realities. And I want everyone here to be raised unto a a resurrection of of life. And the only way you do that is you got to get on the last Adam's train. You got to be connected to him. You got to believe his promises. You got to Hold on for dear life. And when you let go, you know what happens? He doesn't let you go. He, he might let you, he might give you a little, you know, rope. And then he jerks you back to prove to you once again, without me, you can do nothing. What are you trying to do out there living without me? Um, stop it. Now, the Lord doesn't do that, right? The preacher does that. Stop it! The Lord Jesus isn't like that, though. You should be glad I am not him, because I would have told you to stop it a long time ago and kicked you out of the church and perched myself up as the the only pious one here. But it's not true. We're all sinners in need of Christ every moment of our existence. In order not only to take us to glory, but to get us through the wilderness of this life. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that these considerations are based on both the passage in Genesis 2 and some, from some other places in your word would help all of us. Realize the the great, the marvelous, the very good condition our first parents were made in. 
but also the massive tumble that they plunged us all into. And the gulf between um, God and man in light of it. A bridge um, or a gulf too broad for us to jump over. We, we need a builder. We need a savior. We need a skull crusher. We need a prophet, a priest, and king that represents us and obeys God, but also who, who deals with our guilt, our liability to punishment. We thank you that we have such a one in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to love him better, to live for him better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.